This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about organizing to defeat Trump, about movement strategies and tactics, and political issues and campaigns. Our guest is Michael Walzer. His new book is Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics. Also, during the presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl. That story is told in a new book, American Cipher. We'll speak with the author, Michael Ames, later in the show. But first... Trump and immigrants, the other Americans. Trump Watch starts right now. Today we want to talk about the other Americans, immigrants, who will be Donald Trump's main target in the upcoming presidential election. The Other Americans is the title of the new novel by Leila Lalami. Her last novel, The Moore's Account, won the American Book Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harper's, and The Guardian, and she's a columnist for The Nation. Leila Lalami, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, America is a country of immigrants, we all say, and the standard immigrant story is the American dream. Immigrant crosses the ocean, works really hard, becomes a success. The story in your new novel is a little more complicated. (laughs) As life tends to be. (laughs) So the book begins with the death of a Moroccan immigrant on a desert road in a hit and run accident. And we don't know, there's a mystery about who's driving or whether it's an accident or, or something else. And The guy who is killed is a Moroccan immigrant. His name is Dries Gerrawi, and he came to the United States in 1981 with his wife following some political trouble he got into in Morocco, and he moves to the desert in the Mojave, starts a business, and the whole idea for him was that he would come to this country with his wife and find safety and opportunity. And the first paragraph of the book is basically this accident where he dies. So the thing that he was searching for, he doesn't find. And then so the book is told from the perspectives of multiple characters, including his daughter, who's a musician, who returns home at the beginning of the book because of this death, his wife, who's now his widow, his other daughter, the person who runs the business next door, you know, the detective who's investigating the story. But basically all of these characters have some kind of a connection to him. And the book is told from their perspectives. And the setting is not a big city immigrant neighborhood like East L.A. or the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Instead, you set it in a small town in the Mojave Desert. Already, we are surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, that sort of is the expectation. I mean, I was born and raised in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. And then I lived in London. And after that, I lived in Los Angeles. So I've always thought of myself as a big city person. It's a space that I feel comfortable in, the density, the noise, and all of that, and the mix of people. But in writing this book, I had two reasons for setting it in the desert. One was just because I like the desert. (laughs) And I, yes. And I, you know, a few years ago, we started going out to the Mojave, actually. And I 
just really fell in love with the landscape and with the silence and the peace and the quiet and the sort of the fauna and the flora. And I just, I also like the fact that it's the landscape that requires your attention. It's not something that reveals itself if you're kind of a careless onlooker. It requires you to pay attention in order to notice the life that is happening there. And the second reason is because it starts with this hit and run, I thought it would be much more interesting to set it in a small town where the people who lost this man, his family members, might at some point come across the perpetrator of this crime. I guess we have to talk about Donald Trump and (laughs) the politics of immigration. Of course, he's made a big point about not wanting refugees from those whole countries. He prefers blonde and blue-eyed immigrants from Norway, he said. In your book, that issue, the politics of immigration, is often in the background and certainly in our minds as readers. Yeah, I I was wondering how long it was going to take us to, (laughs) before we got to Trump. You know, I have a theory that no conversation between any people in this country can last for long without Donald Trump coming up. (laughs) We went four minutes. Yes, that's So it is a question that has come up as I've been promoting this book. But I started working on this book in 2014, long before Trump announced, and frankly, but long before I even knew of his prominence. I mean, I honestly knew nothing about the man other than he was a real estate billionaire and that he had a TV show that I'd never watched. So I didn't really know anything about him. And I was working on this story about this immigrant. I've had a long-standing interest in the subject, also because I'm an immigrant myself, and I wanted to write a story about that sort of centers on this immigrant. The book basically explores immigration from multiple different perspectives. There's the couple who came here in 1981, but there's also one daughter who was brought here as a toddler and then one daughter who was born here. And it basically goes into their different experiences of immigration. One, even though she's born here, she still has the effects of that immigration are still felt upon her. And then there's another character who's an undocumented immigrant. So that's a completely different situation for him and and sort of the choices that he faces. Let's talk about the cop a little bit. This is not just an immigrant novel. It's also a detective story, a mystery. Mm -hmm. And mysteries are a well-established genre (laughs) with their own, you know, requirements and traditions. It's kind of a bold thing to step (laughs) across the line into that territory. How hard was it for you to write about the cops and the detectives? Did you study Michael Connelly's (laughs) books? Uh, Did you... Do, I don't know, ride-alongs with cops in the desert? We have a saying in Morocco that goes something like this. He who has a tongue will never be lost, which the (laughs) idea being that as long as you ask questions, you will get answers. So I knew, you know, in working on this story, once I wanted to include an element of mystery that I had to basically do my homework. Fortunately, I'd I'd grown up when I was young, like when I was in my teens, that's all I read was mysteries. So I actually was pretty well read from that, but I hadn't picked up a mystery in quite some time. So I wrote my friend Todd Goldberg, who's a crime writer, and I said, Todd, help me out, you know, give me a nice long reading list of what do you admire, what's going on. And so he gave me this long list and I went home and I read and read and read all these crime writers. 
And then I also did my own research. So as you mentioned, I went on a ride along with a sheriff's deputy from the San Bernardino <laughs> County Sheriff's what, what, Department. Tell us about the ride along. <laughs> what was that like? It was a long, it was 12 hours oh. and it was in the heat. And his name was Officer Campos. He was very nice. And we had all kinds of encounters during the day. And of course, I had to remain in my seat and obey all of his directives, but I got to see a lot. I got to see, you know, like arrests and things like that that he had to do that day. But what I came away with, honestly, was how much law enforcement is being used basically as like social work. Like, for example, one time we stopped because the neighbors had called the police because they were worried about this woman who they thought was feeling suicidal because she had lost her daughter. And so they he had to come and basically pick her up and potentially take her for a psychiatric hold. And mm -hmm. so it was like this whole, and you know, that's obviously something that I would imagine a social worker would be involved in, but instead it was the cops being called. I also researched the logistics of a hit and run because I was very naive when I started working on this book. I thought, you know, this guy is gonna die in a hit and run. The car comes out, hits him, he dies, right? It shouldn't be complicated, but of course it's complicated because what kind of a car, what kind of a collision would result in a fatality, uh, what clues might be left, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of things, all kinds of things have to be sorted out. And um, I got really lucky because I was, a friend of mine connected me with someone who's a scientist and who basically serves as an expert witness on these sort of hit and run trials. So I basically did a lot of homework is what I'm trying to say in order to write the the mystery. I, I want to ask about your uh, column for The Nation. Yes. You started writing it three years ago. That was before the election when we all thought Hillary would win and so you would be, you know, a Muslim immigrant columnist at America's Oldest Weekly with a Democratic first woman president of America. Uh, and then after November 2016, you had a big new task. You were the immigrant Muslim <laughs> columnist while Trump was the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant president. I I doubt that was the job you thought you were going to take on. Well, I mean, I, I certainly, like many other people, thought that Clinton would win. But having said that, I do think that it's not just simply a question of anti-immigrant, but just like immigrant, because I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that um, Hillary Clinton's approach was a progressive approach on immigration. So if you look, for example, at what made Trump stand out from among his his fellow Republican hopefuls, it was the immigration ban on Muslims, but it was also building the wall, right? So, but the wall didn't the wall was there. It w wasn't something that started with Trump. It started with Clinton. I mean, Clinton mm -hmm. started building the first wall. It was in San Diego and Tijuana. It was 13 miles of fencing. And the George W. Bush administration expanded that to another 700 miles. And then those those fences and walls were built during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a sense of continuity between both Democratic and Republican administrations on immigration. And while his Trump's rhetoric is just hateful and 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 repugnant, we have to recognize that continuity. And when we talk about immigration, it's not a question of like, 
Trump is bad and Clinton is good, but more of like how this immigration policy that has been going on for more than 25 years, how has it helped the country? Has it helped the country? Has it hurt the country? And what exactly are its effects on people? You and I live on the west side of Los Angeles. You live in Santa Monica. <laughs> this is the most you know, liberal, democratic, anti-Trump place in America, pretty much. There's only one precinct in all of L.A. County where Trump won. It was in Beverly Hills. But I wonder, you are an immigrant from Morocco. You're an American citizen. You're a Muslim. Do you worry about your safety? Well, I feel duty-bound to remind listeners that Santa Monica, however liberal it may be, produced Stephen Miller, who went to the high school some years ago (laughs) (laughs) that my child now attends. So, you know, I think, again, this idea that it's everything, like that it's either or, like we really do have to question that. And just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, revealed that Stephen Miller had been counseling the president to, you know, basically stage these highly public, highly visible mass arrests of immigrants and their families and their kids in their homes. And the only reason they haven't done it, because they've been working on it for a year, the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because Kristen Nielsen said, well, I don't have enough the logistics of it. I don't have enough beds and I don't know what to do with the paperwork because some of them have U.S. citizens. What do I do? And so it was because of that that she was forced out. And as far as like living in Santa Monica, this goes back to what I'm saying. You know, it's yes, I feel safe on a day-to-day basis in my community, but I never let myself feel too safe because I know, based on the example of Stephen Miller, that there is this racist next door, that there is this white nationalist who could be living next door. And I mean, just yesterday when I was on Twitter and I linked to this Washington Post story, all factual, you know, I wasn't even editorializing or saying what I thought. I just said what the headline was basically saying. And some rando on Twitter says, do you have your green card (laughs) to me? I mean, and this is something that happens all the time, like go back to your country and things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I never allow myself to kind of forget about that, of that virulently anti-immigration strain that is part and parcel of American history. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's (laughs) news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You just got back from a book festival in Minneapolis. I did. And Minnesota has the highest proportion of immigrants and refugees of any state. I looked up where they're from. Number one source of immigrants to Minnesota is Mexicans. Second, people from India. Third, Somalis like Ilhan Omar. Fourth, Mm -hmm. Hmong from Laos. And lots of them, of course, are refugees. What was your book event in Minneapolis like? Did any of this come up there? Oh, how interesting that you asked me that question, because while I was there, I had to do an interview. And the person who interviewed me is Moroccan. And the first thing she said to me, because it was her first time in Minnesota, she said, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be a melting pot. People are supposed to be mixed, but they don't mix. Like, everybody's in their own little, you know, area. But the event was fabulous. It was very well attended. And the conversation was really great. So it was a conversation with Tommy Orange, who did a book called There There. And it was moderated by Joseph Farag. Last question. The idea of the immigrant writer, you know, it's such a generic term. On the other hand, 
the idea of the immigrant is so central to our politics and our culture today. Do you want to be called an immigrant writer? I want to be called a good writer. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to be called. And if you want to add anything else beyond that, as long as you put good in there, <laughs> then that's what matters to me. Layla Lalami, her wonderful new novel is The Other Americans. Layla, thanks so much for Thank talking Thank you very much today. for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. What is to be done about a president who fills us with dread and rage? Michael Walzer says it's time for political action, for commitment and participation in movement politics. He served as co-editor of Dissent Magazine for more than three decades. He's also written for The New Republic, The New York Review, and recently for The Nation. He's Professor Emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. He's written many books, recently A Foreign Policy for the Left. We talked about it here not long ago. And his new book is titled Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics. He's also an old teacher of mine and an old friend. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Well, what is to be done, of course, is a classic question on the left. You provided your answer when you wrote this book. That was in 1971, the dark days when Nixon was president and the war in Vietnam seemed like it would never end. Now, that book has been republished by New York Review Classics, so I guess that makes it official. The book is a classic. Yes, along with a few hundred other <laughs> classics. Okay. But... <laughs> 1971 and 2019 are obviously different, but there are some similarities, at least for people on the left. Let's talk about that. Well, the crucial similarity is that we need to get off our backsides and into the streets, and we need to organize, we need to mobilize, we need to demonstrate, we need to do all of the things that um, some, that political the word political action defines. I actually wrote in the aftermath of the civil rights movement and the and the anti-war movement in a moment when we weren't sure what to do. 70 and 71 was a time of when people on the left were, were confused about what to do. We thought we couldn't have a worse president than Nixon. We, we thought that again with Reagan. We thought that again with the second Bush. And now we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> it, it didn't feel at that moment in 70, 71, it didn't feel like it feels now. The, the threat to American democracy seems much, much greater today than any time in my, in my lifetime. And that makes it especially important to, to think about ways to think about ways to, to organize. Um, and a lot of people are doing that. The resistance has many, many elements. Indivisible is very important. The women's march is very important. The, Black Lives Matter is very important. There is a lot going on, and we need to talk about it, and we need to, to make it much bigger. 
movement politics is what you recommend. That sounds great. But you say most people are innocent of the complications of political life. I'm quoting, they are unaware of the personal risks involved. What are the complications and the risks? You know, what, what I found in, 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 in the 60s was people join movements like um, the civil rights. We were picketing Woolworths in Cambridge, or we were knocking on doors um, against the, the war. People new to politics find the hostility they encounter enormously difficult, surprising. They are surprised. Politics is, a, is a contentious, is adversarial. You march on a picket line and people insult you in, in, in ways you've never heard yourself talked about like that. <laughs> okay. And that takes getting used to and we need you need to you need to prepare people for that and you need to help them get through the first the the first response. And then as we all know, anyone who has a history in left politics knows that conventional politics attracts conventional people and unconventional politics attracts unconventional people and you have to you have to deal with obsessives and, and, and zealots and crackpots who are good people, all of them, <laughs> and somehow have to be included, but also um, brought into um, accord with other people who, who, who are not crackpots or obsessives or zealots. There's a lot of diplomacy involved in politics, which I think also people don't don't understand. So there's the hostility, there's the zealotry, and then there's the apathy, the ignorance, and the not caring, and that's also surprising. Yes, yes. And uh, every political movement is also an educational movement. That's why you draft leaflets, you, you write pamphlets, you, you write statements that people can sign on to. You argue about what should be on the signs that you carry at a, at a demonstration. And all that is educational. You're, you are, that's what the union movement used to do for, for millions and millions of American workers. Um, movements are, are educational and they produce political activists, even minimally political voters, who are much more intelligent because of where they're coming from. You say in the book Political Action, there are only two kinds of politics. There's pressure politics around issues and electoral politics around candidates. We can try to change the policies or we can try to change the people who make the policies. Let's talk about our situation right now when everyone is looking at the candidates in the Democratic primaries. You can join the Bernie campaign or the Elizabeth Warren campaign or the Kamala Harris campaign, but that doesn't seem like the same thing as movement politics and community organizations around issues, although the Bernie campaign in 2016 looked and felt a lot like a movement. But is working in presidential primary campaigns what you have in mind right now? Um, it's important that some people do that. I'm, I am a strong believer in a division of labor okay. on the left, but um, it's also important that people pick issues and organize around particular issues. And then you can endorse a candidate who, who will tell you that he's going to support you on that issue. And then if he wins, you have to 
continue. You have to keep the pressure on him because he's unlikely to do everything that he promised to do. So you need you need a movement focused on student debt. You need a movement focused on police brutality. You need a movement focused on health care or women's rights. Or you you need movements that 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 focus attention and and mobilize support so that you can tell a candidate we can deliver votes to you we can deliver workers for you if you commit yourself on this issue and remember once you win we won't let up the pressure well of course the big issue right now on the left is the green new deal and what makes it so radical is the way it combines the issues the green new deal people argue that the way to win people to support action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is to mobilize people to support jobs programs, health programs, education programs. And we have to do it all. We have to do it all at once. And we have to do it all right now. Uh, mainstream people, uh, centrist liberals object and they say, let's focus on reducing carbon in the atmosphere. That's number one. That will be hard enough. I guess you could call this a choice between multi-issue politics and single-issue politics. Uh, how do we decide? How do you decide? Well, look, political parties are by definition multi-issue. They have to bring people together who are focused on, engaged with very, very different issues, who, people who have different interests. The party has to bring them together and has to produce a, a, a program. And I guess that's what the Green New Deal people who are Democrats are are trying to do. I, I worry about dispersing our energies. So I'm 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 not sure. I, I like the people who are pushing the Green New Deal. Um, I'm not sure this is the the best strategy. Well, let me shift focus here to another thing you take up in your book, Political Action, meetings. Doing politics, first of all, means going to meetings. Tell us what makes for a good meeting and, and why so many are not good. You know, we on, on the left, we, have, we, we always have a problem of the activists, the militants, mostly young people who have a lot of time on their hands and who are eager and who, who know that they are absolutely necessary to the cause. And then the community people, as we used to call them, that we aim to mobilize and bring in who have families and jobs and not a lot of time, and they will come to a meeting and then miss a meeting, or they'll come to a meeting and leave early, and the militants will stay and talk and talk and talk and pass the resolutions at the end when a lot of the people have left. Um, and that's always a problem. And so we need to devise organizational structures that, that, that make room for full-scale participation, but also make room for partial participation and involve some forms of accountability, forms of representation. And that's, it's very, very important to, to, to find a way to sustain the, the, the energy and the commitment of people who have a lot of time and to hold on to the people who don't have a lot of time. Well, one of the keys to local work, of course, is canvassing. Talking to people face-to-face -face is probably the best way to 
get the sympathetic ones to take action and the apathetic ones to change their minds and the ignorant to find out what's happening. But canvassing is hard. There are many pitfalls. What have you learned about canvassing? Well, I've learned what you just said, that it is absolutely necessary and that the social media have not made it unnecessary. Let's talk also about demonstrating, another thing that movements and activists do. You say demonstrations don't always require large numbers of people. Your demonstration doesn't have to equal the Women's March the day after Trump's inauguration. But wouldn't it be better if it did? Oh, yes. I mean, one of the reasons for recruiting and mobilizing is to demonstrate. You want to demonstrate your strength. And the strength, the strength of the right is in money, but the strength of the left is always in numbers. And we, yes, you need numbers. But the numbers, in, in the, when we were picketing Woolworth stores, our big achievement, which we, which we thought of as a demonstration, at, at the height we were picketing 40 Woolworth stores while the kids in the South were sitting in at Woolworth lunch counters. 40 Woolworth stores with maybe 20 people at each picket line. That's 800 people. It's not an enormous number, but to get 800 people to come to a picket line, and they were often taunted and insulted and harassed, to get 800, that's a demonstration of strength. And it, 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 it was in our terms for our kind of movement. It was a big demonstration. We've only got a minute or two left. Do you have any last words for us? Well, my last words, um, and I'm speaking now as, a, as a, 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 an old person who doesn't have the energy he had 50 years ago, I think it is absolutely important, more important than it has ever been in my lifetime, that large numbers of American citizens commit themselves to the act of political work, to the act of protest to the act of constitutional defense, democratic defense. I, I would love to go on the offensive, and I hope we do soon. But my first worry right now is we, we can't lose. We have a lot of lost ground to make up. We have a lot of principles under threat to defend, and we've, we've got to go to work. We've got to go to work. Michael Walzer's new book is Political Action, a Practical Guide to Movement Politics. It's an invitation to commitment and participation. I wrote the introduction. Michael, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. During the presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor, close quote, who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his platoons based in eastern Afghanistan. This was in 2009, and he was quickly captured by the Taliban. Eventually, President Obama traded Taliban prisoners to get him back. 
He was court-martialed, but not sentenced to prison. The whole story tells us a lot about what was wrong with America's longest war. Now the Bo Bergdahl story is told in a new book. It's called American Cipher. And we're joined now by co-author Michael Ames. He's a contributor to Newsweek and Harper's. He's also written for The Atlantic and The Daily Beast. Michael Ames, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, listeners may recall hearing about Bo Bergdahl, not just from Donald Trump, but also from Sarah Koenig on the Serial podcast, which devoted its second season to the story. Our first question, which is the big one, why did Bo Bergdahl walk off his base in Afghanistan? That, is, that was the million-dollar question for, for the five years he was, he was a prisoner and for uh, after he came home for a while. But fortunately, we do have an explanation. He sat willingly. He volunteered to sit for an interview with the Army investigating general on his case. And he spoke to him for two days, and he went into great detail about his reasons. Now, just because we have that reason, and I can even tell it to you, doesn't mean that it might make that much sense. And a lot of people will remain skeptical because it seems so far-fetched. But I think the, the sort of delusional nature of his reasoning is an insight into, into the fact that Bo didn't belong there in the first place. So tell us, what was this reasoning of his? His reasoning was that he wanted to set off an uh, alert for a missing soldier. He wanted to create this uh, hubbub around him. It was a stunt. He wanted to walk through the night from his base about 18 miles to another forward operating base. Now, soldiers who've been there and will say, well, that's insane because it's uh, Taliban territory and there's no way uh, at that altitude and in that terrain he could do it. But where Bo is from in Idaho, and I used to live in his hometown for many years, the terrain is very similar to where he grew up in Idaho. And he spent a lot of time in the backcountry by himself. And the distance from his base to where he was trying to get to was roughly the distance from his parents' house to where he used to work every day. He wanted to go there to make a statement. He wanted to talk to a general, and he wanted to say everything that he thought was going wrong with the war. Some of his critiques of what he was seeing are legitimate, things about the war that just didn't make sense. Other things he was seeing were not legitimate, such as, he thought their battalion commander was going to send his entire platoon on a suicide mission, and there's no real, there was no real um, evidence for that. And how did Bo Bergdahl, walking off his base in Afghanistan in 2009, get to be such a huge thing for the American military in Afghanistan, which then spent years searching for him? It's a great question. In the summer and fall of 2009, the Army turned the missing soldier crisis that Bergdahl kicked off into an opportunity. Of course, they went looking for their soldier that was missing within the first couple of days. It was a very high priority. It was totally legitimate. But after several days, it started to change and it turned into something else. Intelligence was was known within days and certainly with, within less than two weeks that he had been taken over the border to Pakistan. Even after that was known, soldiers were continually sent on these search missions for him for months afterwards. And those men were lied to about what they were doing. Their commanders were using it as an excuse to run more aggressive raids. And they still haven't really received an honest accounting from the army about it. And then, how did Bo Bergdahl get to be 
a political issue for Trump so many years later in 2016? Well, Trump picked up on it even earlier. Trump was on this right from the moment Bergdahl came home. And that's because Trump was already wired into a political communications campaign that kicked off the day Bergdahl was recovered on the Afghan-Pakistani border, May 31st, 2014, when, hours later, Richard Grinnell, who was a Republican operative who Roger Stone once told me was too uh, shady for him to work with, (laughs) went on Fox News and said that Bergdahl was looking for the Taliban. And he just dropped it casually into the conversation. There was no evidence for it. In fact, he was recycling Taliban propaganda, merely in saying it, because it was the Taliban all along who was saying, well, Bergdahl has converted and Bergdahl has now joined us and is is fighting the holy war. There was no evidence for it. There never has been evidence for it. But Grinnell said it that day, and Trump said it a few days later on Fox News. And it became something that he saw was uh, a good trigger for his audiences, and he stuck with it all the way through the election. Of course, as soon as he became the commander-in-chief, he stopped talking about Bo Bergdahl. And, of course, he also focused on the fact that Obama had also made a big deal about Bo Bergdahl and getting getting him back, returning him from the Taliban with a ceremony in the Rose Garden with Bo Bergdahl's parents, and Trump also focused on that. As did, as did many people who were confused and outraged by how the Obama White House handled it that day. And we interviewed uh, Obama White House senior aides, and there's no one who will say that what they did that day was the right thing. They definitely bungled it that day by presenting it as a political victory rather than what it was, which was a lopsided prisoner trade that was the... Um, the best deal available that the White House and State Department thought they could execute. And they used it for their own political gain in a clumsy fashion. But everyone involved in this case has used what Bo Bergdahl did. And that's why he's such an interesting lens onto the way American politics works around the war. Everyone at every stage used Bo for their own institutional advantage. And that goes from the army, to the Taliban, to the Obama White House, to the Republicans upon his return. Well, who was Bo Bergdahl when he walked off his base in Afghanistan? How come he was in the army in the first place? He was a guy who didn't belong there in the first place. And that's something, as I said, I lived in his hometown in Haley, Idaho for many years. It's something everyone who knew him knew because he was such a a, a gentle soul, kind of kind-hearted kid. Just to Put it in some context, before joining the army, he was considering joining Cirque du Soleil and actually traveled to a Cirque du Soleil audition. He also was was in talks, his parents, um, who were religious Christians, were in talks with their pastor who was doing missionary work in Uganda. And Bo was also trying to go to Uganda to help the villagers there and teach them self-defense. So he was really a guy, a young kid, looking for a purpose. But he was incredibly physically fit, incredibly strong and smart, but he had some pretty significant social problems and emotional problems. So two years prior to him enlisting to the army, he washes out of the Coast Guard basic training with um, kind of a panic attack, anxiety breakdown. 
the Coast Guard issues a form that says he should not be able to serve in the armed services again unless he gets treatment and screening, so on and so forth. The Army simply provided a waiver and took him in anyway. Because in 2008, with a war in Iraq still raging and the Obama administration pivoting to a major troop surge in Afghanistan, the Army lowered its standards. And what that typically meant was maybe now they'll take in guys with felony records, or maybe they'll take in men with lower IQ or with other issues. Bergdahl was a fairly unique case. Here's a guy who looks like a soldier, knows his soldier handbook. He had dreamed of being a soldier for years, and he knew weapons. And he, from a distance, looked like he looked the part. But when he got in there, he, because of his own unique idiosyncrasies and what was later diagnosed as a personality disorder, really didn't fit in at all and couldn't handle what was going on there. It didn't belong there in the first place because of the likelihood that he would do something as crazy as what he ultimately did. Let's talk for a minute about the recovery effort. Some of the most shocking stuff is about what the soldiers went through who were sent to look for him. Oh, yeah. And they were sent for months on these ridiculous quote-unquote search missions that were no longer search missions. They were anti-Taliban missions under the auspices of a different name, which is we're going to look for Bergdahl, even though he was already over in Pakistan. They were sent to fight the war. And these guys did the job um, as if they were actually looking for Bo, so you could understand why they would be so angry at him. Uh, but one of the things that, that motivated some of my earliest sources to go on the record and talk about this is the fact that those people were lied to. Their families didn't know the full fact. And when some soldiers died on those missions, they believed they died looking for Bergdahl. But this is really an important point. The six soldiers who were often cited as killed looking for him, all of them died weeks after the army already had overwhelming intelligence and the rest of the intelligence agencies on the case had already come to the conclusion that Bergdahl was in Pakistan. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story. Now let's talk about the, the, the trial and the verdict. What do you make of the legal proceedings against him and the very controversial verdict they came up with? Well, the legal proceedings were an incredible waste of resources. There were four times as many Pentagon prosecutors on the government team as there was on the team that prosecuted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So it was a politically driven case. It was the tale of Fox News wagging the dog of the Pentagon JAG Corps, which is a crazy dynamic that shouldn't have been allowed to go that far but for a variety of factors, everything from, from what John McCain said at the time when he was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he said that there would be hearings, that there was, not, there was no punishment. And just from the power of the media entertainment system, it led to this incredibly overblown full court-martial that took resources away from the rest of the Army legal system, incredibly. As for the verdict... I don't think it was as controversial for the people who were following the case closely and who were going to all the hearings. He was reduced in rank. He did get a dishonorable discharge, which is equivalent to a felony. He simply was not thrown back in a cage. 
And I think people who heard what he had been through, who heard how the army used his crisis for its own gain, realized that that that, that was a fair and reasonable verdict. So in the end, what does the story of Bo Bergdahl tell us about what was wrong with America's longest war? I think Bo Bergdahl came to be a crucible of our country in general. He was a kid who didn't, who didn't belong in this place, fighting for an army that didn't belong in this place. Here's a kid who's broken, fighting for a war that's broken. And here's a kid whose idealism led him to do something completely insane. And I think we are a country whose idealism led us to waste immense resources and treasure in a war that was completely insane. The book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. Michael Ames is the co-author. Michael, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>